little touch pass there. Benson waiting, cuts in, he scores! Oh my! Into the middle, holding, back, Toporowski shooting, shot block, got it back, shot, score! Center of pass forward, of stop, shot, back to play, score! In front, Groove scores! Jaden Groove scores the triple overtime winner. Welcome in to WHL Unfiltered. Uh, pleased to be joined by Les Lazaric, the sports director of the Saskatoon Media Group. Uh, did, I, did, I get, did I get that correct there, Les? You got it, Chad. Well, I mean, you've you know you've worked hard to to uh, put yourself in that position over over a lot of years there in in, in Saskatoon. I you know I I want to make sure to give you credit for you know rising to to the position that you have. I mean, what all you know we know you from doing play by play for the for the Blades over over the years. I mean, what what other duties does that that title come with? As far as it seems like you wear a lot of hats right now. Yeah, I've worn a lot of hats for a long time. I've been the sports director at the Saskatoon Media Group for 28 years now, uh, out of the 29 that I've been with uh, in, in Saskatoon ever since I moved from from my hometown of Winnipeg to here uh, back in 1994. So uh, I was one year just doing the blades and then helping out in the in the newsroom doing sports, uh, sports casts, sports reports. Uh, going to news conferences and that sort of thing that are sports related. And I still do those sorts of things, but not as much as I used to. COVID kind of has uh, stepped in and really done a number on, on the mainstream media and certainly the radio industry. You're not as uh, able to move around. Your, your staffing is less. You've got other responsibilities in the office and you seem almost chained to that office in order to get those things done. And if you can get away to a practice or if you can get away to watch another game or something like that, it, it's rare, but it's certainly appreciated. That much I can tell you. Yeah. And also, please. And to, and to, and to, and to, and to, and to finish off the okay. question, actually, part of the, the responsibilities include I do three sports casts a day uh, during the day. My my day is a, is a 9.30 to 5.30. I don't go in for early mornings and do sports casts because uh, that's just plays havoc with my health. Uh, I found, and so I've st I haven't been doing that for about ooh, fifteen years now. I haven't been in the mornings, which is great, um, and it because it, it can interfere with that day-to-day -day hockey stuff. So working nine thirty to five thirty, three sports casts, a daily sports commentary. I'm I'm opinionated. I'm not afraid to admit it. So uh, that's uh, I, and, and I follow everything. I mean, I follow everything from from baseball, which I love, to hockey. To the NFL, the CFL, everything. I mean, it's it, we we we're full service when it comes to that. I love it, and uh, and I also want to introduce uh, my lovely co-host Sean Mullen. How's uh, how's things yeah. going for you tonight, Sean? Oh, it's not bad. Sorry to come and pop in just a, a hair behind schedule. My internet was not cooperating. Hey, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful spring day here, except that. Uh, we're getting a little, a little bit of flooding in Swift Current. Yeah, I was going to say, are you, are, you, are you in high ground? <laughs> oh, yes. I'm oh, good. luckily nowhere near it. But good, we took good, a walk good. down to the park today, and it's it's as bad as I've seen it since 2011. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, well, hopefully hopefully everybody in, in Swift Current is, is uh, well, dry, I guess, right? Hopefully everybody's safe mm -hmm. out there. Yeah. Um, Yep. Yeah, the current's getting a little swifter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, Les, I mean, you know, you're one of our favorite guests, obviously, and you, you mentioned being opinionated. That, that, that counts. That's, uh, that's kind of right in the, right in the, you know, the, the currency we deal with. Um, you know, mm -hmm. that, that uh, you know, I feel like you guys, you know, you covered the, uh, the, the most interesting series of the first round for for any number of reasons kind of what's your your broad brush 
strokes about you know the the Saskatoon Blades and, and Regina Pats are in the first round. Okay, so before the series gets started, you're taking a look at a 29 point differential in the regular season. Uh, the Blades with 101, Regina with 72. Um, if you didn't have to have the division winner getting one of the top two seeds, the Blades wouldn't have played Connor Bedard and the Regina Pats. They would have gotten uh, the Calgary Hitman instead. But because the rules are what they are, Red Deer got the second seed for the first round only. The Blades with the third seed get number six, which is Regina. And suddenly you've got the big city Saskatchewan rivalry in full vogue, uh, but only playing a playoff series for the third time in my time doing Blades hockey. So this is the first Blades-Pats series in 17 years, going back to 2006. And the other one was 2000. So you go into it and you think to yourself, okay, the only thing that can catapult the Blades out of the playoffs is if Connor Bedard just goes off and has an incredible series and they get some some production from other people. Because otherwise, going into it, you thought that the Blades had the depth to be able to overcome anything that the Pats could throw their way, that their defense was better, their goaltending was better, and they'd be fine. They should win this thing in no more than six games. And then you start off at home in Saskatoon at Sastel Centre, big crowds, over 10,000 both games, and the Pats come out stomping, and they win 6-1 to one and 6-5 in overtime, and it's like, whoa, what's going on here? You go down to Regina, you're in must-win territory now, and you're that close to falling behind 3-0 in the series. It's 3-1 midway through the second period. They get a big power play goal from Igor Sidorov less than a minute after the Pats had gone up 3-1. You tie up game three with 27.2 seconds left to go in the third period with your goaltender on the bench and on the power play. So it was a six-on-four situation. And then you win in overtime. So now you're back in the series. You win another overtime game, coming back from almost the exact same situation, down 3-1, a little bit earlier in the third period. So you had a little more time to come back, win in overtime. The first four games, the road team wins every game. It's like, what is going on here? Does nobody want to win at home? Well, the Blades did in game five and looked really good doing it, winning 4-2. Come back to Regina with a chance to win the series in game six last Saturday. And then the Pats decide they're going to be a good home team and they win 5-3, led by Bedard, who was, that was his best game as far as I was concerned. He had a goal and three assists. And when you're a centerman who has the puck as much as he has, when you're creating like he did that game, uh, that is a better game than scoring three goals and adding two assists for five points because you just sort of have the puck come to your stick, it seems. It follows you around, and you really don't do anything spectacular. He was spectacular in Game 6, setting the stage for Game 7 on Monday, and that one was a nail-biter for most of the first 40 minutes. Of all people, Spencer Chagru, probably the 18th skater on the roster, plays defense, has played center. He's a 19-year-old, 5'8", 154 pounds, and he scores the opening goal of the game, and it's like, Spencer Chagru? Seriously? And then you go up 2-0, the Pats make it 2-1, you get another goal later on, you end up winning the game 4-1, you win the series in 7. It was just a roller coaster ride, an incredible roller coaster ride of a series. And yet, guys, it mirrored 2,000 between the two teams because the Pats won the first two games in that series, the Blades came back and won the next three. Regina won game six at home to force a game seven in Saskatoon, which the Blades won five to one. That game was 1-1 after two periods, but the Blades scored four unanswered in the third to win and advance to the second round that year. So um, it, 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 there, was, it, there was some eerie similarities to that, but of course a lot of people, that's a generation ago. That's 23 years ago that we're talking about. So a lot of people didn't know about that. Yours truly happened to know because he lived it. <laughs> he, he's been there for both of them. And uh, this one, though, was just that much more special because of the, the Bedard fact and all the fans in the stands. Three sold-out games at the Brand Center in Regina, 64.99 each night. And then the 10,000s for games one and two, over 12,000 for game five, and then the sellout of 
14,768 for game seven. Uh, the, the atmospheres in all seven games were just phenomenal and something I've never, ever seen involving a Blades team in my 29 seasons now. The start of the series, Les, I mean, you know, you nailed it. The depth was certainly in Saskatoon's favor. They kept the puck out of the net exceptionally better than Regina throughout the season. They had held Bedard, you know, reasonably in check in the season series. Do you think the moment got a bit overwhelming or, or caught them off guard to some degree? Or did Regina elevate their play that much? I mean, you mentioned, you know, you don't normally get crowds like that and buzz like that. And there was so much attention on things. Did it kind of, you know, did they kind of lose themselves for a couple games and then find their game as the series went along? They'll, they'll admit it now that there was some stage fright in game one especially, and then early in game two, and they realized that, oh, goodness, we're down one nothing, and this is a game two at home again, and we've got to find a way to win this and get a split before we head to Regina. We don't want to fall behind to nothing. There was stage fright. No two ways about that. And then some guys on Regina elevated their play. Stanislav Fosel is a phenomenal player. Like, to me, he was the second best player, and maybe even at times better than Bedard in some of the games in this series, just because of the minutes he logged, the position he plays on defense, having to move the puck, having to defend, and and does it so well. Bedard is so, it isn't totally one-dimensional, but he's not known for his defensive game. Sposal's known for his defensive game, and he's also known for bringing offense. So to me, at times, he was more impressive than Bedard in the series. And then Alexander Suzdalev, their Russian 18-year-old, the Washington Capitals draft pick, really was good as well. He scored a couple of goals, but he was setting plays up as well. And so those three, along with Drew Simmondal, who had a below 900 save percentage, but won 27 games during the regular season, started doing his impersonation of Josh Harding, who's a former Regina Pat great that ended up going to the National Hockey League. He was doing his Josh Harding impersonation and, uh, and, and was doing it very well. And as a result, uh, the Pats had that early 2-0 lead. Um, on the Blades side of things, stage fright, Austin Elliott in goal, an East Division All-Star in goal, had a tough go in the first couple of games. They finally had to pull him midway through the second period of game two, put in Ethan Chadwick, and that seemed to sort of get the Blades twigged in that, oh, we better smarten up and get back into this thing. They almost won game two, coming from behind to force overtime before losing, and then you know, Chadwick and Gold won them three games in a row uh, to get them back in back into a good spot in the series. So, um, you know, the long story short again is uh, the, I think the Blades suffered from some stage fright, and the Pats had some people who really elevated their games. Most of their their better players were better than the Blades' better players were. Those those first games, or maybe the whole series, were, were they on TSN? Was was that part of it? No, nothing. Uh, no, no TV. I, at one point, when it was becoming obvious that the Blades were going to be playing Regina, uh, the thought was is that the series might actually start on a Thursday night and play games one and two Thursday, Friday to help accommodate TSN. But TSN has so many things on the go with uh, curling and uh, March Madness was on at that time. They had every game of March Madness and the women's. Uh, NCAA basketball tournament. Uh, TSN is running so many things and, and feeds that they don't have to really do a whole bunch too. I mean, it, it doesn't, there's not a lot of overhead cost for them in order to do their own production of a Western hockey league playoff game. That means getting the truck out there and getting a whole bunch of staff out there. And it's costly. So uh, they chose not to do games one and two. And eventually that kind of got helped along when the uh, under 18 AAA midget, triple-A uh, male hockey final was being held between Saskatoon and Regina, you know, ironically enough. And they decided to put the Saskatoon Blazers games in Sastel Centre, the home, the home rink of the Blades, and included a game five of the series in Sastel Centre on the Thursday so that you couldn't hold games one and two Thursday, Friday. You had to start Friday and Sunday, as it turned out. How much do you think it was a good test for Brennan Sonny and his coaching staff, you know, find yourself down early going head to head with an absolute legend in John mm -hmm. Paddock, who has been through every type of situation you can imagine for a coach and having to go toe to toe with him 
and making the adjustments oh. they made and dealing with motivation factors. I mean, for that, you know, a, a fairly inexperienced staff as a head coach at this level to get that opportunity to have that matchup and learn a ton from it, I'd imagine. Yeah, I, I think there's a learning curve there again. Um, it, Sonny, of course, has been around a little bit. He was an assistant coach under Kevin Constantine, along with Mitch Lovett as an assistant coach in Everett back, you know, seven, eight years ago, went and coached as a head coach men's professional league in France for four years and then came back to junior. And last year, I would say that was probably the biggest adjustment period for him was getting to learn about 16 to 20 year old kids and those 16 to 20 year old kids learning about him who had gone through working with Mitch. And while there were some similarities, there were definite differences between the styles of Brendan Sonny and, and, and Mitch Love. And so last year was that transition year, the learning curve year, however you want to describe it. This year it seemed to mesh right from training camp and right on through. But then, like you say, now you're coming to the playoffs. Uh, and even though there was a playoff series last year where they lost in five games in the first round to Moose Jaw, now you're coming up against a team with so much hype centered around a player a coach, like you say, is a legend in John Paddock. Uh, you've got to try and overcome all those things. And uh, and there's adjustments that need to be made on the fly throughout that time, especially in the first two games and after game two, getting ready for game three, trying to figure out how exactly do we try and stop number 98 and what are they going to try and do to us with their power play? How do we break through the, the seemingly impenetrable defense that they put up? The Pats in game one, I'll go back to game one. The Blades got 28 shots on goal. I would say the Pats blocked as many shots as the Blades got through on net on Drew Sim. That was a game plan of theirs. They just collapsed back on five on five and had five guys, it seemed, blocking every shooting and or passing lane, and the Blades are getting frustrated trying to get through. Eventually, they were able to get pucks in behind defensemen, chase in with their speed, make things happen by getting to pucks first and catching them uh, a little bit un, you know, out of position compared to what they had been in, and that ended up being a big part of the series. So that was part of the adjustments that they had to make, uh, and they were eventually able to overcome. You know, one thing I really keyed in on this series is the the captain-on-captain matchup, and you know, I mean, it's it's. I've always you, long, long, uh, regular listeners of the show know that I've been resistant to make it into a, a, a you know Connor Bedard unfiltered, and you know, but it, it but he has been you know the topic of the league, and you know, you see where I'm going with this, Les. I mean, to see Delagorjandier, mm-hmm. you know, ha, you know, get that you know that matchup, you know, I mean, he's going to go up against whoever the other guy's top top pairing is top line is you know we're going to be seeing a lot of Caillou Chaz here coming up this weekend but you know and and it's and it's so funny with a guy like Bedard because yeah he he, he had 20 points in seven games but it could have been worse you know I mean I th- I think a lot of nights Delegajardier won won that battle I mean what what say you it wasn't just uh, Aiden Delegajardier who won, won the battle it was a group of four defensemen because the thing about the blades and then the thing about Bedard is, is shift length. The blade shifts. Brendan Sonny doesn't want you out there any more than 40 seconds. Get your 40 seconds, get off, roll the next group on. Bedard don't play 40 second shifts. He's out there beyond that a minute, a minute 10 sometimes. And so you almost have to do this in pairs and at home, it's not so bad. You can get the right people out all the time. You're changing on the fly, getting the right people out. But on the road, sometimes you start and you don't get the right defense pairing or the right forward line out against him. And that, and that was problematic at times. But the good news for the Blades was, that again, they had so many injuries at different times this year that some of the younger kids had to play against other teams' better players at times. And so when you threw the fourth line out with Jordan Keller and Misha Volotovsky and Justin Lees, you knew that they had the, you had some confidence in them that they could handle it. You knew that the defense pairing of Ben Saunderson and Spencer Chagru, the so-called third pairing, could 
stand up and do an effective job at times. But if you could get Blake Gustafson and Charlie Wright out against Bedard's line, or Aiden Delagrosjandier and, Ta- and Tanner Mullenlake out against Bedard's line, you stood a lot better opportunity. And you even felt better if you could get the Jaden Weens line out or even the top line with Trevor Wong, Igor Sidorov, and Brandon Lazowski out there against those guys. And in the end, it was Wong's line who ended up going head-to-head in Game 7 at home with Bedard more often than not and did a phenomenal job. Now, you know, Chad said we don't want to make it too Bedard-focused, but it is, like you know, like he also said, the biggest story in the Western Hockey League and probably in a number of years. So just quickly, less having seen him develop from – you know, when you first saw him in the bubble till what you saw in this series, how did you see his game elevate in the playoffs or did it elevate compared to what you'd seen him uh, do before? And now that the Connor Bedard experience is over in the Western Hockey League, how do you reflect back on your view of it? So much hype of him coming in, being named an exceptional status player, being allowed to play as a 15-year-old. Mind you, he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of kids that played in the bubble as 15-year-olds. I think of Braden Yeager and in, in Moose. I think of Tanner Mullendike with the Blades. Played as 15-year-olds in the bubble in, in Regina. But Bedard was the showstopper. And again, it's almost too bad that you couldn't have fans there and you couldn't really televise. You couldn't do much of anything because of the pandemic. Uh, But I I got the opportunity. I was one of the fortunate few who were able to watch games. And I would go just to watch him play when the Blades weren't playing and I knew the Pats were playing. Because what else was I going to do with myself living in downtown Regina? It felt like I was a single guy living in a one-bedroom apartment there for uh, for a couple of months. And I didn't really enjoy that part of it all that much. I missed home. I missed my wife. Uh, but I had to come back out to Regina and be there on a regular basis because the games were being played on average every second night. Bedard, from that point on, is grown. He's gotten thicker. He's gotten smarter. He's just... He is, without doubt, guys, the best hockey player in the world not currently playing in the National Hockey League. I know people have said that, but I will reinforce that statement by saying it that that's my humble opinion of Connor Bedard. He is the best player on the planet that's not currently in the NHL. And just just to be clear, I don't I don't mind blowing the the rest of the Bedard budget on this show because you know he's not this is. You know, this is this is the end of his time in the league. It just, it just, I don't want him to dominate the conversation. You know, over the course of the season, but you know, this series, I mean, very much, you know, front and center, and and that was the thing we we touched on earlier, less that I was really personally, and I said this in the in our preview show that I was really excited that Regina was going to get to play somebody with a big building, you know, and and that was you know the Sassel Center there. And, and I mean, it was you know we spoke off air a little bit before the show started. I mean, what what was it like to have those those big crowds in there to you know sell the Saskatoon Blades to the the, the locals? Well, and, and of course it goes back. This was almost like a best of nine, not a best of seven, because there were two games in Saskatoon before the end of the regular season, just before the end, March nineteenth and twenty fourth and all the hype that went into those two games, and they sold both those out. The Blades' attendance for this season jumped from total from like, or or an average of about 3,800 with those two sellouts jumped up to 4,500. So games, home games 33 and 34, you saw an average attendance jump of 700 fans per game just because Connor Bedard and the Pats sold the place out. And that was the appetizer ahead of the main event, ahead of the main course in the best of seven playoff series. And, you know, they, they didn't disappoint. The, the fans came out. They loved what they saw. For the most part, they got what they wanted. They wanted to see Bedard. They wanted to see him perform and see what he's about. But they still wanted to see the home team win. And in the end, the home team won the most important game. They, they won the series 4-3. They won the best of nine, including those two home games before the end of the regular season, 5-4. to four. So they got what they wanted. They got the home team winning in the end, and they got to see Bedard, and they got to see Bedard flourish 
and 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 perform amazingly with those twenty points in t- in uh, in seven games. I know just from my experience in two thousand eighteen, especially that once you start getting crowds like that and energies like that, and uh, you know the the night becomes an experience, yep. it becomes a little addictive. Are, are you optimistic that you know? The repeat will, you know, you, you can't necessarily replicate exactly what happened in that series. Maybe it won't be 14,000 every night as, this, as the playoff goes along. But are you optimistic that enough people had a good experience, experienced the electricity of the playoffs, saw the Blades overcome uh, the early deficit and put on a show, and maybe, you know, you'll, you'll get some spill-off, not only for these playoffs, but carrying forward? I hope so, Sean. I honestly don't know. Um, I was asking today, I haven't been into the rink today. I was stuck in the office, like I was saying earlier on, uh, with my radio duties. Um, but I phoned over to the Blades office and I asked how tickets are going. And I was told it's been going slow for games one and two this weekend. And to me, game slow means that they're close to selling out the lower bowl, which is about 5,000, but not quite. They're already starting to sell some tickets in the upper deck, but that's, you know, when you're talking about having had at least 10,000, to me, the over-under for games games one and two might be 8,000. I hope they get to 8,000. I want to believe that people were entertained so much by what they saw of those six games that they've had in the last month that they'll say, you know what? We should think about going back and seeing what the Blades are doing in round two against a different opponent. No, the Red Deer Rebels don't have Connor Bedard, but they've got Ben King. They've got Kalen Lind. They've got Kai Uchaz. They've got Christopher Setoff on the blue line. Uh, they've got Kyle Kelsey in goal, who's got a shutout in the first round, and his goals against average is under two. I mean, King was a 52-goal man. For the Rebels, not this past season, but the season before in uh, in uh, 21-22, um, his time limited this year because of injuries. But, you know, that this is a good team. It's a different team. They're not going to play the same way as Regina. Uh, the, the Rebels are a big, heavy, physical team that are going to finish all of their checks and they're going to make you hurt. You're going to be bruised and battered after every game and you're going to feel it. And the, the ability for the Blades to evade that, to be elusive and find a way to win. It, it's a different, it's a different uh, series altogether. But people are still so enamored by that star power that somewhere along the line, a star power has to be recognized in either the Saskatoon or Red Deer lineups and make people want to come out. And it hasn't quite happened that way just yet. I'm hoping I'm wrong. I'm hoping that somehow... Folks will realize that, hey, it's a nice Friday. Let's go to the rink again and see what the Blades are up to in game one or a Sunday at four o'clock. Let's go see game two and then and, and buy some tickets. So hopefully that happens. Well, I mean, I guess I suppose that's the difference between listeners to this show and the and, and the casual fan, you know, with, with, you know, 20 bucks to burn. Uh, you know, I mean, it, we, you know, we know that you, you mentioned some of the, the, assets that you know red deer brings to the table and and the, the strong strong team that they've put together i mean you know for me steve connor walchuk is is uh you know he, he he's not we're not going to watch him but i mean that's a pretty pretty big star power right there's a draw right there for me oh absolutely uh, again like you say chad we're invested in the league so much we know what steve connor walchuk's background is not just as a national hockey league player and, and a very productive National Hockey League player, but from his time of being a head coach in Seattle and getting them to a title and getting them to a final in years gone by, uh, and now coming back and working in Red Deer, and he's got his type of team like he had in Seattle. He's got that going in Red Deer, and they are a handful, and they have all bought into what Steve Konowalczyk is selling. So it, it, that is that is star power there. That is something. Uh, maybe we should get. It, this is. It's not like the old days where you could go to the coach and and the coach understood the value of trying to whip up the crowd into a frenzy and whip up the populace into a frenzy and say something outlandish. That really, you really said that. We got to come out and see what you're talking about. Is this really going to happen? 
But of course, the games are so different nowadays compared to what they were back in the day in the 70s and the 80s in the days of Punch McLean and Patty Janelle and those types of legendary coaches. Uh, you don't see that anymore. So uh, I don't think I can go over to Steve Konowalczyk maybe tomorrow when Red Deer shows up and, and ask, hey, Steve, what what is it you don't like about the Saskatoon Blades? And he says something outlandish and people are going to go, you can't say that about the Blades. We're going to come out. We're going to boo your butt off, so to speak. <laughs> They're not, it's not going to happen. It just doesn't happen that way anymore. Les, uh, the goaltending situation seems interesting heading into this series. Neither Ethan Chadwick or Austin Elliott had stats that were anywhere near their regular season marks, but it was, again, a unique series. So what, in your mind, uh, is the approach heading into the Red Deer series? You look back to you know the larger sample size of the regular season, What's the coaching staff saying? Uh, what's your feel heading into this series with the goaltending? The feeling I get is that Austin Elliott will get the start in game number one. Uh, what they did this year is unique, obviously. The first 32 games of the regular season, they alternated. Those two guys, without question, without fail. Elliott, or sorry, Chadwick, Elliott. Chadwick got all the odd-numbered games. Elliott got all the even-numbered games. Didn't matter who they were playing. There were no hunches played. It was a religiously following that back-and-forth type of rotation. Once they got through game 32, they were into beyond Christmas break. Now the decision was made, okay, now we're going to start giving starts to guys who deserve to play or guys who are playing with the hot hands, so to speak. Maybe if they won the last game. Where the difference came sometimes was if they were playing on back-to-back nights. And, of course, that happens a lot in the Western Hockey League. So you still weren't seeing the hot hand necessarily getting a lot of starts in a row. This isn't like the Winnipeg Jets, who last night played Connor Hellebuck for, what, the 17th or 18th straight time when they beat Minnesota Wild and got themselves into a playoff spot. No, whenever there was a back-to-back, one guy played, the other guy would play the next game sort of a thing. And then you'd go looking to see who was the hot hand who had won the game and go with that guy the next game. In this first series, Elliott was given the opportunity because he was the East Division All-Star. But he didn't play well for four and a half periods. They had no hesitation of pulling him in game two, putting in Chadwick, and then starting him in games three and four and five because he had the hot hand all of a sudden. No, the numbers aren't great. He only was a better than 90% save percentage in game five, but he was good enough in games three and four and then again in game five to win. And ultimately, that's all that matters is whether you win or not. And he was winning. Game six, not a very good game for him. That was the Bedard show that I mentioned earlier on. And so now you come to game seven. Well, do you put Chadwick back in? You know, do you trust that Elliott can find his form? They have bounced back and forth without fail all season long. And so the decision was made. We're going back to Austin Elliott. We have to show confidence in him again because we've said we're going to go with the hot hand. Well, now it's your opportunity to go and bring it home for the team. And as Brennan Sonny called him the closer in game seven, uh, he ended up doing that. He was great. He stopped 25 of 26. And so I expect that he will play game one on Friday against Red Deer. I'd be shocked if he didn't. And he will play until he loses. I mean, one of my favorite teams of all time, and here I'm going to start dating myself because I'm 64 years old and I remember this kind of stuff. I'm a Boston Bruin fan from a long, long time ago, back in the days of Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito, and those types of people. The 1970 Boston Bruins won the first two games with Jerry Cheevers in goal against the New York Rangers. They then played game three, Cheevers lost. Put Eddie Johnston in in game four, he lost. Went back to Cheevers in game five. They didn't lose again and won the Stanley Cup with Cheevers and net for the whole thing. This is kind of the formula the Blades are going to follow. Elliott plays until he loses. Next guy in, Chadwick. Chadwick plays until he loses. Back to Elliott. Back and forth like that, I think, is how the Blades are going to do things uh, over the next little bit. That 1970, that was the Noel Picard trip, right, that year? That's exactly right. Bobby Orr flying through the air with the game-winning goal in Game 4. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, no, that is interesting. I mean, we talked, you know, on, on uh, Pucklandia last night about, you know, having, you know, uh, uh, having two goalies that are, you know, fairly equal, 1A, 1B, whatever whatever phrasing you want to go to. And 
a lot of times in the playoffs that's almost a, a, a drawback. But you know, for uh, for this Blades team, you know, with uh, you know needing the needing the extra help to try to shut down Bedard, I mean, it, it seemed like it, it worked out pretty good. You know, going going being being able to go back and forth to that flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that just the fact that. And then they get along so well, the two of them, and they know that they neither one of them is really the guy. It just happens to be who's going to be the guy at a certain time and whether that guy is playing well. And, you know, Chadwick played well, then he lost, and Elliot won game seven, so now it's going to be his chance. And, and they understand that. There's no animosity. They understand exactly what – their goaltender coach Jeff Harvey is saying, and Jeff Harvey has a lot of say in who plays and who doesn't play in consultation with the rest of the coaching staff. And that, and that one goal he gave up in, in, in game seven, I mean, it's you'd be hard-pressed to find an uglier goal. I don't, I, did, did, did they ever figure <laughs> out who, whose stick it actually went off of? Uh, actually, it ended up going off Elliot's uh, helmet and in because it got up in the air and in behind him. And I think it was Igor Sidorov that was behind him, swatted at the puck with his glove and ended up batting it off of Elliot's helmet and into the net. So it, that thing was a hot potato, to be sure, uh, on that particular shot. Yeah, that was that was one thing, Let, too. Oh. You know, it, it. I always like that. I, I think I tweeted this, too, that, you know, with the way the streaming package is now that, Everybody can watch every game, at least round to round or whatever. And, you know, the only show in town, you know, Tuesday Night Lights. And so, you know, the whole league was watching watching the Saskatoon Blades and uh, Regina Pats. And, you know, most of us listening to, to your call, Les. And it's just kind of a fun thing. It's like, you know, Monday Night Football or, or whatever, you know, here in the States. Like everybody kind of coming together and watching the same game. And, and uh, you know, I've... What, what's I go? What's that like having having a little bit of extra, you know, I don't uh, responsibility pressure. I don't know what the word is, but you know, knowing that you know, in the, for for a long time on the radio, you're just catering to the to the local team. Whereas now you know that with the video feed, you know, we're we're all tuning in. We're all you know taking in the, the this Blaze game. What what what's that like from from your standpoint as a, as a play by play guy? This is going to sound so cliche, but I tried very hard not to think about what kind of an audience I was going to have that night because I know it wasn't just a Saskatoon or a, a Saskatoon in area audience and maybe with some folks from Regina. I knew this was a Saskatchewan audience. This was a Western Canadian audience. This was a WHL audience. And I dare say that with Bedard involved that there was maybe even a little more of an audience involved in, in professional places with, uh, with NHL cities. I, I know that I heard from people outside of the Western hockey league and in the national hockey league realm afterwards talking to me about game seven and that series and what Bedard did and all the rest of that. Um, and yet, so I knew that uh, that was probably going to be the case that all eyes of the hockey world were going to be on Saskatoon and would be hearing my call and I had to just shut all that off and just pretend like this is a regular Wednesday night home game in November and just try and call it that way and not worry about all the rest of it. It was difficult to do because there's so much drama involved with the game seven that you can't help but get caught up in it, but you had to just keep yourself in the moment, so to speak, and not worry about all the external people who might be listening. I couldn't worry about my good friend Peter Young in Winnipeg listening in and, and telling me how wonderful the game was. I couldn't worry about my friend Greg Drinnen in Kamloops listening in and, and wanting to tell me about how great the game was and all the rest of that. That, that was not something in my head when the game was actually on. But boy, does the energy of a full house and that vibe and the buzz that adds to the performance, doesn't it? I mean, it can't help but add to the performance. It doesn't matter who you are as a broadcaster when you get that, you know, it's like a, it's like a third, third member of the booth, the way that that crowd takes over and, and feeds into the energy and the sound. Yeah, I, I, I hope that it came through that way. I, I honestly don't know. I, I mean, I listened to a little bit of it 
I'm very hard on myself uh, when it comes to self-critique. So I, there were some things that I wasn't thrilled about that had happened or some some phrases that didn't come out the right way that I wanted. Um, but I like to think that we put on a pretty good broadcast and we gave a pretty good representation of a Game 7 in the first round of the WHL playoffs. Myself and Adam Ehrmantraut, who did an outstanding job with me doing color, and our producer back in the studio, Michael Salmon, who's just been phenomenal all season long. I mean, we, we didn't have a technical glitch, I don't think. I think everything went off about as smoothly in that respect as we could get. And it was just a matter of, well, could, the old, could the old guy doing the play-by-play -play step, step it up and then get it done? And I like to think I was able to do that. <laughs> oh, it sounded great. Like, it always does, Les. But it, 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 you, you know, always rise in the moment, make the moment feel bigger when – when it is, and it was great that way. Yeah. And now, now you get to advance on to the next round, and and we've talked a little bit about, you know, what that series would be like in, in the season series. Saskatoon won three of the four games. Right. How do you like the matchup for Saskatoon against Red Deer? Um, I like it better than I would if it was against Moose Jaw or Winnipeg in the second round. Um, to me. And I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, and I apologize. I know that at times when we, when the Blades have played Red Deer, I've had the numbers written down for myself. The Rebels did what they had to do in order to finish first in the Central Division. They owned the teams in their division. They just clocked everybody from Edmonton to Calgary to Lethbridge to Medicine Hat to Swift Current. They dominated the five other teams in their division. The record within their division is outstanding. The record against East Division teams was closer to 500. And as a result, to me, it, it says that Red Deer could have some problems handling a team with speed that's going to try and get pucks behind them and make you turn and try and catch up to them. Uh, to me, because you know the Blades beat them three out of four. Winnipeg had the advantage over them. Regina did okay against Red Deer. So uh, the fact that the East Division had you know, moderate success, and much more so than the teams in the Central Division, tells me that the Blades have a better matchup here against Red Deer than they would have against, say, Moose Jaw or Winnipeg in round two. I think the Blades like their situation here. They'd like to be able to get off to a much better start at home than what they did against Regina, uh, falling behind 2-0. They'd like to be no worse than 1-1 going to Red Deer. They'd prefer being 2-0, a whole serve, so to speak, going to Red Deer. And I think that possibility is there. Um, it's just going to be a matter of can you be elusive enough? Can you avoid as much of the big contact that you're going to try and put on you? And can you limit your turnovers at both blue lines against the Red Deer team that does have a very good transition game. And can you stay out of the penalty box because Red Deer's another team that has a very good power play with Christopher Setoff quarterbacking up top in the middle and you, Chaz, and King on either side for the one-timers off the wings. Uh, they are a very, very effective power play, and you just cannot give them extra chances with that, with that power play. Yeah, and you know, I've already mentioned, you know, the the, the coaching staff there. I mean, to, and to come from, you know, they've struggled heavily during the, the the bubble season. You know, when they got to live at the rink, and people love that, and but they didn't really have any success at at you know at that very rink. And to, to see them build up into a you know a division winning team in, in a short period of time, it's been it's been really kind of remarkable to to see the you know, what, what, uh, you know, Brent has done over there with, uh, you know, putting this team together. Oh yeah. No. And of course, if you, if you ever need a team to be put together in a, in a, in a fast hurry, Brent Sutter is probably as good as anybody in the league at doing that. I mean, there's a lot of great GMs in the Western hockey league that have honed their craft over many, many years. Uh, and of course this, the cyclical nature of the game, when the down cycle happens, the ability to limit the amount of time that that down cycle is before you start rising back up and becoming competitive and being a playoff team again, that's a big deal. 
Uh, and Brent Sutter has been as good as anybody over the years since he's been in Red Deer since, what, 1998? Uh, you know, the odd, the odd absence because he was coaching in the NHL. But basically, it's been his franchise and his way of doing things for, you know, 25 years. And he's done it so terribly well. And to see that team that was in the bubble and struggling mightily in 2021, you know, rise up and be a very good team last year and again this year, can't say I'm surprised. That's that's just the way it is with Brent Sutter. Les, it's been now 10 years since, which is hard to say, I can't even believe it, since the Memorial Cup year in Saskatoon. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it was an awful long time before Blades fans and the organization could get, you know, this kind of an experience again. And just as the team was ready for that spot, you know, Doc leaves and COVID hits and, it just felt like anything that could go wrong that could delay the possibility of having this kind of experience again did. How meaningful is this for the Blades organization and for Blades fans having gone through how long of a process it's been to get to this stage again? It is huge. I can't state, Sean, how big this is for Sask Entertainment Group, Mike Priestner, Colin Priestner, Steve Hilty, Hildebrand. And everybody, Tyler Warwick, the director of business operations now, and all the people that work in that office, for them to be able to try and send that black cloud that has followed the franchise since its inception back in 1964, send it away for a little while and see how well you can do this year. There was cautious optimism amongst a lot of those people that they could get to round three this year. And then they made a couple of additions and they really feel like they've got something going here that could be special. The additions being Blake Gustafson, the former rebel on defense, who's just solidified that blue line. And then you add Jake Chase on who scored two game winning goals in that series against Regina from Brandon. And, and you've got a team that's as solid a group, top five defense and, you know, nine, 10 forwards deep, that are exceptional, old and exceptional, that they feel pretty good. There's not a a star, an overriding star amongst them. The closest would be maybe Mullendike because he's ranked 36 by Central Scouting amongst North American skaters at the midterm ranking and probably rising based on what he did this year uh, with 30-plus points and a plus 33 uh, plus-minus rating, if you believe in those sorts of things. Some people do, some people don't. Uh, I happen to think it's a big deal when you're one of the top pluses on your team. It means you must be doing something right because you must be on the ice quite a bit when your team's scoring. So, uh, But beyond that, I dare a lot of people to find five guys that they can rattle off the top of their heads from the Saskatoon Blades as being their top guys. Because on any given night, it can be the Wong line. On any given night, it can be the Pillar line. It could be the Weens line. Vaughn Waterroot had seven points in that first round series. Who? Vaughn Waterroot. Go Rosetown. Like, a, lot know, a lot of people don't know who he is. Yeah, he's from Rosetown. Exactly. But he had seven points and 12 penalty minutes because he's playing that pain-in-the-butt game that he plays so well, yet he had three goals and four assists as well. So where does that come from? Well, it's just that time of year, somebody, I mean, every once in a while you get a Fernando Pisani or a John Druce or somebody like that in the playoffs that rises above what they normally do and they end up doing something great for you. And the Blades have that ability with a lot of different guys to have that. And that's why there is that kind of optimism coming into this playoff and that finally something good is going to happen for this franchise and they need it in the worst way. It's been, dare I say, and I, I always quickly preface this by saying, I am not a jinx, but just, <laughs> before, but just before I showed up in Saskatoon in the fall of 1994, this team had been in finals in 94 and 92 and lost both times to Kamloops, but they got all the way to Game 7 of the Western Hockey League final. They haven't been past the second round since then. So... This is a big series upcoming for this franchise. If they can get past Red Deer and get to the Eastern Conference final, wow, you'll be playing hockey in May. That hasn't happened outside of the 2013 Memorial Cup when you were the host team 
and lost out in the first round of the playoffs. That hasn't happened since 1994. It hasn't happened in 29 years. That's massive. But Les, I'm usually the guy that makes a John Drews reference on this show. I'm not sure we've had a guest do that, but... But, but again, to, again, Chad, that, this is me, 64 years old, who has watched a lot of hockey over the course of his lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I was not aware of, of the game during that time. But, uh, you know, I've, you know, as a, you know, somebody who likes the history of things, I've learned I've learned about yep. a, that particular player. But, you know, but I want to I'll, I'll never forget, Bruce, not to interrupt you, but go, because go we had a hockey pool in my family and we had one of those people in a hockey pool that knows nothing about hockey. And we're just kind of picking players randomly and pick John Drews and everybody. I remember it very well because everybody was like, what are you doing? Why are you John Drews? Why are you picking that guy? Then he won the pool. So, yeah. Oh, I love, let me just quickly put into the, put this as well, because back then that was back in the eighties when he did that with Washington. Uh, I was still in Winnipeg working as a reporter, working for uh, for CJOB Winni- uh, radio in Winnipeg. And, we covered the team very closely back then. He ended up being acquired by the Jets at one point, and he was hilarious talking about that. You know, he almost had a kick at the road, kick at the ground, kick at the dirt, ah shucks type of mentality towards it. But he he got a charge out of it any time somebody brought it up. That's for sure, and that, that's his great claim to fame was the ability to score. 10, 12 goals or however many it was in that playoff year and be a big factor for Washington going as far as they did. Sorry, I, am I interrupted? <laughs> no, that's, that's, the, that's the nature of this, of this format. But, you know, I want to circle back around to, you know, kind of touch on both of you guys' points there in that, you know, when, when post-Memorial Cup and there's no assets, there's no players, there's no draft picks, and the Priestners roll into town and – you know, people kind of gave a little bit of a side eye to, to Colin Priestner with, you know, didn't, had he paid his dues, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, has a good relationship with the owner of the team, so to speak. And, and to see him, you know, build this team to, you know, a slow, steady climb to, to where we are. And, you know, and, and, you know, Sean mentioned, um, you know, losing, losing Kirby Doc. I mean, that, God, that, that just so frustrating from my standpoint because I wanted to see you know fully formed and operational Saskatoon Blades and and benefit from you know from Kirby Doc as as a as a eighteen and a nineteen. We just didn't get to see that. But and 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 to be honest, yeah. I, I I thought about trying to get Colin on the show. He's he's fun to, to have on the show, but you know he's minute to minute baby watch as we speak, and so I didn't really want to bug him on that one. But anyway, I mean it's it's a guy that I, I feel that has definitely earned his, his stripes as far as, you know, the, 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 the rep, he, he should have a good reputation in, in town there for, for building this team in, into what it is. And, you know, I just want to make sure to, to, to give him credit. I mean, I, I kind of wondered too, I mean, you know, does he have the, the, the background? Does he have the experience? And, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I don't think you can really, you know, criticize, you know, much of, of anything that he's done to, to build the blades up to this point. If anybody needs to be reminded or hasn't figured this out, let me tell you that this franchise has had six consecutive winning seasons. They would have been in the playoffs five straight years, if not for losing two of them to COVID-19. That's pretty good. A lot of teams don't go six winning seasons in a row or five straight years in the playoffs. And the possibility of them making it seven and six next year, I would say, are still pretty darn good because a lot of their better players are 2004 born or 2005 born. When you think about Mullendike, Sidorov, Lazowski, Wong probably coming back as a 20-year-old, Charlie Wright coming back as a 20-year-old on the blue line. Both goaltenders are back next year. So you go up and down that lineup, yeah, they're going to lose some guys, but they're not devastating losses to the point where you're going to fall from being the second best team in the Eastern Conference to being ninth to 12th and out of the playoffs. I firmly believe that won't happen. And a lot of that goes to the drafting and the shrewd trades that have been made, the the ability to build a team. When I think of the Blades now in the last number of years, 20-year-old defensemen have been the hallmark and getting those good 20-year-old defensemen. 
from Dawson Davidson to Scott Walford to Wyatt McLeod to Rhett Reinhardt and now Aiden Delagrosjandier and Blake Gustafson this year. Those were those are stalwarts that you have to have as 20-year-old blue liners on your team. And Colin Priestner's gone out and made sure he's had that type of a defenseman available to his team in each of the last five seasons. When you mentioned drafting, I'm sure a lot of people were thinking about Dan Tenser, the head scout, who had a really scary car crash, and um, we're happy to win one for him, too. I'm happy to report that he's been seen. In fact, I uh, I had the chance to fly back in the in the owner's private jet back to Saskatoon from Regina after Game Six, uh, and Dan Tenser was on that flight. He looks great. He it doesn't look like anything happened. So we're very fortunate that that accident wasn't worse than what it was, and we're very fortunate to still have Dan Tenser, the director of scouting, with us right now and and feeling as hale and hearty as he is. I wanted to mention Quick Less as well. The other series. Um, I didn't think it was a big surprise Moose Jaw dominated Lethbridge because if you looked at their record before the player suspensions uh, and then after, and you looked at who they were missing and who they were getting back, uh, I thought the matchup was going to be tough for, for Moose Jaw and, or for Lethbridge and that Moose Jaw is a lot better than their record indicated just for that reason. But how do you see them matching up with Winnipeg now? Well, they've given Winnipeg some pretty good games. I mean, they beat them twice. One of them, I think, was in Winnipeg, and it was like 8-3 to three or something silly like that. So um, I don't think the Warriors are going to get scared off by the Winnipeg Ice. I expect this to be a, a series that goes a long way, and it'll be a real fast, offensively-minded series. And the team that gets maybe the better goaltending and the better adherence to team defense might win that series. And it's not a guarantee that Winnipeg is going to win it, but I think uh, they should win it, but I don't think it's a guarantee. Well, and you talk about a team feeling pretty good about itself in, in Moose Jaw. I mean, the way they dispatched, you know, a, a pretty good Lethbridge team. I mean, they should have been – we expect them to be fairly even matched, and, and uh, the Warriors didn't feel that way. I mean, they – you know, they got to be, you know, pretty confident going up against this, uh, you know, very, very tough Winnipeg team. Yeah, well, again, Connor Unger missed the 17 games. He was one of those four players. But he's a 20-year-old goaltender who was having a career year until the suspension happened. Max Warner is a 19-year-old defenseman drafted by and signed by the Edmonton Oilers. He's a big defenseman who plays so well defensively and then has thrown in some offense into the mix this year. And so those, those are the two guys that they, that they missed and now that you have them back, it's like you made a, de- a, a deadline deal acquisition just in time for the playoffs, and you're putting these two guys back into your lineup, and, they, and they, they've excelled. And that just makes all the rest of them, the the Logan Dohaniaks and the uh, Denton Matejchuks on the back end, and then up front with the Furcus Circus and, and my buddy Braden Yeager and uh, you know Ryder Korzak, who was another one that they got back. I mean – how do you get back a guy like that from the pros as a 20-year-old who was, you know, a big scorer last year, and then he comes back and he's, you know, point and a half a game during the regular season? That was a massive get for for Moose Jaw. Uh, they're in, they're in it to win it this year. They they think they can beat Winnipeg, and I don't see why they wouldn't think that way. I just think that's going to be a great series to watch. Yeah, I mean, the the difference between the two Ungers statistically. That in and of itself shows why it was tough for Moostra to get the wins they needed down the stretch. But, it, you know, regardless of who wins that, and you don't want to look too far ahead, but you're not a player on the ice, so we can do that with you, less because, <laughs> because it's not like asking a coach or a player to look ahead. If you did have to look ahead to the conference final and one of those two teams, probably Winnipeg, but who knows, is standing there for the Blades, you said you thought that would be a tougher matchup than Red Deer, although we haven't seen it yet. Yeah. How do you feel? Like, do you think Saskatoon has what they need to put a real good fight into those teams? Yes, I, I think they do. Uh, again, so long as they stay healthy, and that was a big thing that was part of the problem that they had in the middle of the season was when they at one point had seven regulars out, uh, four of their four or five of their top nine forwards were out at the same time. Uh, it made it difficult to compete head to head with 
Winnipeg, especially whom they played a couple of times in that period, uh, even Moose Jaw when they played them before the suspensions hit. Um, getting all their guys back and all the players are back for those two teams. Although I don't know that Zach Benson's back yet for Winnipeg. That's a that's a big question mark there. If, if Benson continues to be sidelined for the ice, that's a big piece out of their lineup because he was so good this year with a hundred plus points. But if if I, I think to answer the question, I think the Blades match up well against both those teams. They've proven they can beat them, and I think they would have a good chance of advancing to a WHL final if they come up against either one of them should they get past uh, Red Deer in this second round. Les, we've, we've talked earlier about you know having a, a full barn and, and, and packing the, the Sastel Center and the, and the energy and and all that, and, and I think everybody, well, aside from that one guy, everybody loves that, right? Well, yep. as an opinionated Winnipegger, um, mm-hmm. what's going on with, with that barn? And, and, and what, what, you know, I mean, I, I haven't I haven't caught any of their games uh, in, in the first round there in, in Winnipeg, but, I mean, what, what are they going to do? Oh, I, I, that situation saddens me because, again, I am from Winnipeg. I'm thrilled to pieces that I can go back home and see my sisters when I visit and see friends of mine from back in the day, from before the time that I moved to Saskatoon, and I still keep in touch with those people. Uh, I get a chance to visit with them again. That, to me, is, 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 a, is a great bonus. And then you go there and you get to play against a very good team. I mean, that's a phenomenal franchise. been built up so well on the ice by Matt Cockle, the general manager, and coached so ably by James Patrick. But you're playing in that building, and you have not been able to put a shovel in the ground yet towards building the new one you said you were going to have by now. And that's a travesty. It's ridiculous. You cannot have that situation. It's been so hush-hush and so quiet at the league level with regards to it. And there's all kinds of speculation. There have been articles written. I don't know what to believe anymore, whether the team is staying beyond this year. Does, you know, is Greg Fettis and his family still going to be able to own the team beyond this year? Or is somebody else being sought in Winnipeg to buy the team and have a plan to build a new rink? They're never going to play, at least not to my knowledge, not right now with the relationship that the league and Greg Fettis has with True North, the owners of the Jets and the big building downtown. Uh, the Canada Life Center building. I, I don't see that happening. So you got to build the building from scratch. It's got to have at least 4,500 seats. It has to have Western Hockey League standard. They made Moose Jaw do it. They have to make Winnipeg do it. The ultimatum's been given to what I know. But whether or not that ultimatum is being followed yet or not, or whether there's a new owner coming, or whether the team's moving, I don't know because it's deadly quiet at the Western Hockey League level with regards to it. And we may not know until this season is finally done. But I hope, it is my sincere hope that they find a way to keep them in Winnipeg because it is a big thrill for me to be able to go home. Do you think, though, with the... Selfishly speaking. (laughs) With with the rise, less though, of AHL teams playing in their... NHL cities, and you know who knows if it'll happen in Edmonton, but it's it's happening for all the other ones uh, in Western Canada. That really makes it tough to have a sustainable junior hockey franchise, too, doesn't it? Because they become the family-friendly alternative that's tied to the NHL team, and uh, and you know now you're third in the depth chart, which kind of makes you disappear pretty fast. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think you're third on the depth chart in Calgary, for instance. Maybe the Hitmen are behind the Flames and the Wranglers because you're owned by the same people. The Flames or Calgary Sports and Entertainment owns every team, it seems, in Calgary. And as a result, I think you do maybe fall behind into third spot in the hockey but if you're owned by somebody separate and you're not playing in the same building as those other two teams, I think you have a chance to fix and find your niche ahead of that American League team. Because, quite frankly, outside of the fact that they're older, 
the players, are they that much better than a major junior team? I mean, there are some players that play major junior, Connor Bedard, uh, uh, Dylan Gunther in, in Seattle, and I can probably pick out two or three in every team in the league that are better than some of the players that play in the American Hockey League level. And I think some NHL teams would probably agree with that, that, you know, there's some kids that then some of the junior franchises have got teams that are a little more interesting to follow than some of the American League teams at times. You're saying moving to Quebec City? Is that kind of where we're at? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, well, uh, gentlemen, I think we should probably put a put a bow on this. I think we're going to run out of uh, runway here with uh, with our connection. Um, you got any any last final thoughts here, uh, Les, as we prepare for round two? Well, I'll bring it on. Just bring on round two. I'm anxious to see what the series between Saskatoon and Red Deer brings. Again, it is a classic battle of a team that's going to try and skate and be fast against a team that's going to try and hit them and hit them and hit them a third time. Uh, what 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 style wins out? I think that's interesting. Uh, I'm curious to see how it works out between Moose Jaw and Winnipeg, and I am very intrigued with what goes on in the uh, in the Western Conference. Uh, Seattle Prince George. I'm somewhat surprised PG got through. I thought Tri Cities would prevail, especially after they went up two games to one in that series uh, with the with the next two games in in Kennewick, but it didn't happen. Uh, and I'll be not afraid to admit that I'm like every other Eastern Conference team. We are unabashed supporters of the Kamloops Blazers, the Memorial Cup hosts, because if they can win the Western Conference then the Eastern Conference champion is automatically going to Kamloops for the Memorial Cup. So go Blazers, go. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. Maybe, maybe uh, you know, kind of t- 2007 um, Giants and, and uh, Medat Tigers exactly. kind of situation. That's absolutely it. That's absolutely it. And, and I apologize right away to all the Portland Winterhawk fans because I know that's a great group that follow that team. I just don't know that you can do it against – a pretty stacked Kamloops squad, but God bless you if you can. They got their work cut out for them, that's for sure. And yep. and, and people interested in that, there is a Pucklandia episode to, uh, previewing that series out there. So, Yes. All right, Les, well, we really appreciate your time and, uh, you know, best of luck going forward for the, uh, you know, see, see how long uh, see how long this run lasts. For sure. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to following this and uh, look forward to following you guys and what you're up to here with these podcasts. Enjoy it, Les. Yep, thanks, John.